0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the lens, New Orleans' 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. This week, a special episode. The Orleans Parish Criminal Court has been improperly disqualifying people with past felony convictions from serving on juries over the last year and a half, resulting in the disenfranchisement of hundreds of potential jurors. We'll discuss what the ramifications are and what's being done now to address the problem. That's coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, Will Snowden, director of the Vera Institute of Justice's New Orleans office and founder of the nonprofit The Juror Project. Hi, Will.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. Norris Henderson, founder and executive director of Voice of the Experienced or Vote. Hi, Norris.
2: Hi, how you doing? Good, um, thanks. Glad to be here also.
0: Great, thanks. And Anisha Shetty, director of communications for Vote. Hi, Anisha. Hi. And criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel here. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. All right, so before we get into the discussion, Will, for those who aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us about the Vera Institute of Justice and your own nonprofit, The Juror Project?
1: Yes, the Vera Institute of Justice is a national nonprofit that focuses on uh, improving the realities of our criminal legal system. It was originally founded in 1961 in New York City with a focus on the problems of money bail. It has since expanded to do work in 40 states around the country. I have the privilege of being the Louisiana director for our office here, that's based in New Orleans. And there's an office in Los Angeles and the main office is in New York. Uh, Vera has been doing work in New Orleans since we were invited by then council member James Carter after Hurricane Katrina to help reduce the overall jail population. Um, I first came to New Orleans in 2013 to be a public defender and while I was a public defender in New Orleans, I quickly realized the different systems and policies that were removing diversity from our juries. And so I started the Juror Project, which is a passion project of mine, which has two main goals. The first goal is to improve people's perspectives of jury duty, and second is to improve is to is to increase the diversity of our jury panels. We know that when we have more diversity, we have more fairness, and so that's a commitment that I have with the work I lead at the Jura Project.
0: And you were just leading a class this morning on that very subject at Dillard?
1: Yeah, I'm at um, Dillard University here in New Orleans, one of our HBCUs, speaking with a freshman pre-law class specifically about jury service.
0: Excellent. All right, Norris, tell us about Vote, Voice of the Experienced. What's that organization about?
2: Uh, what's experience is uh, a nonprofit that uh, was started by myself and several guys. why I was still inside. Um, uh, we was known as Angles Special Civic Project, and uh, fast forward a few years, some of us started getting released. I got released from prison, and one year to the date of my release, I actually incorporated both. And uh, we exist primarily to. Uh, I guess, to fight for the human and civil rights of former incarcerated and incarcerated people around establishing, you know, things that we've been foreclosed from. Uh, One of the things I was sharing with, and I share this all the time with people about this particular issue is like being a part of something and belonging is two different things. You know, we're part of this community, but when we're excluded from certain things, we don't feel like we belong. And so one of our roles is to kind of like look at all these collateral challenges that we face and trying to remove these barriers that's in front of us.
0: We're really curious about your experience when you were in Angola and how it was that you started to agitate, I guess, towards towards gaining the rights back. Tell me about that experience.
2: Well, well during that time I was there, this, this prison was known as the bloodiest prison in America. Yep. And there was a lot of man, inhumanity to man going on there. And uh, at the same time, we was under a federal consent decree uh, because of conditions. And so a core group of us, I worked in the prison law library as a librarian, and a core group of us got together and we had to make a decision. We want to change our conditions or we want to change our circumstances. And so we opted for the lab. We started using the skill set that we had acquired, you know, the law, and started to draft legislation. And, uh, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, we drafted some legislation that actually became law. Uh, uh, be, nowadays, they call it the Geriatric Bill, but they create Parole Health Bill. But everybody that was in prison, with the exception of ISIS, and the vast majority of us was lifeless. Mm. So the hard lesson for us was that being on, on cutting edge of change, sometimes you don't benefit from change, you burn about. And uh, just doing a research project, I stumbled upon the fact that once our constitution had changed in 1974, that for incarcerated people had the right to vote. And so I became like the Pied Piper of telling everybody, hey, man, folks can vote, folks can vote. And folks just kept telling me, nah, they can't vote, they can't vote. Once you go to prison, you lose your voting rights forever. And that actually was not the case in Louisiana. And so I made a commitment to myself and those folks I left behind that, one, I wouldn't forget where I came from, and all the people I left behind. So I've been on this journey uh, ever since, trying to remove every barrier that pops up in front of us, be it employment, be it housing, be it access to education. And uh, so we've been kind of like, you know, checking the boxes as we go. But that's what really kind of like started this, because... Um, uh, uh, some procrastinator was saying that we're going to have the worst ride in America's history. And we started thinking about what happened at Attica, what happened in St. Quentin, what Mm. happened in Mexico, and we was like, "Nah, we got to figure this out. Burning the place down is not going to solve our problem. Mm. And so we took the other route, we kind of like, how do we change our circumstances And we just used the legal talent that we had amongst us to start drafting legislation. And got blessed to have a legislature that introduced legislation that turned into law. And it was like, hot dog, we own something now, you know. And so ever since, we've been pushing on. And so we're doing this all across the country. In Alabama, uh, Glasgow, we were able to do to get a better interpretation of what moral turpitude meant. And that had prohibited a lot of folks from being on the road. So we've taken this legal knowledge that we've acquired by hooker crook hook, and kind of like doing something meaningful with it in the sense of teaching people about what their rights are and what these constitutions and why these laws were actually instilled in the very beginning. And across the Deep South, it was Jim Crow policies that allowed these laws to exist.
0: Okay, locally. So, Nick, we've talked about this uh, on the past couple of podcasts. Can you give a brief recap of what the situation was?
3: Yeah, so vote Norris and Andisha's organization, in mid-January they wrote a letter to the criminal district court judges here in Orleans Parish uh, explaining to them that they they become aware of juror summonses that listed qualifications that indicated that anyone with a felony conviction um, isn't able to serve on a jury, and that's not true anymore. Um, in 2021, uh, the state legislature passed a law saying that people who have been off probation or parole for more than uh, five years um, can serve on a jury, even if they even if they have a felony conviction. So, so once that was brought to, to their attention, um, you know, vote uh, suggested that that you know, this needed to change, um, and that, that the, the court should halt jury trials and, 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 you know, kind of reassess their process for, for summoning jurors. Um, that didn't happen initially, but after some defense attorneys filed motions, um, kind of arguing that, that these juries uh, weren't properly constituted, um, an appellate court kind of stepped in and ordered a hearing, and eventually the court decided that they needed to, to halt jury trials altogether, which they've done um, until March, um, so that's kind of where we're at now and there's still some kind of uh, legal maneuvering in, in court right now to determine what's going to happen with, with past cases and, and kind of how, how we're going to move forward. Haven't heard this full story from, from Norris or from anyone at VOTE yet, how you guys became aware of this, um, you know, and how you came to write this letter in mid-January.
2: Well, initially, we, we were the ones who actually pushed the legislation. I mean, it was kind of like uh, a combination of two years back when we got the franchise or uh, extended to folks on probation and parole, this was like the cleanup. You know, we're going to really remove these barriers around uh, disenfranchisement and need to include jury service. And so then initially, uh, Representative Ted James, filed the initial legislation, Uh, that didn't move us to where we wanted to be. And then this last uh, year and a half ago, uh, Representative Denise Marcel, Alabama Rourke, has picked it up after Ted Jam left the legislature and uh, pushed the envelope. And, uh, you know, the most striking thing about this conversation was that the DA's association was on board. It was 100% behind it because, you know, the thing about disenfranchisement and uh, restoring those rights Is that the recidivism rate completely bottoms out? Folks who are more engaged civically seldom, if ever, commit another crime. Mm. And so they're starting to kind of like, kind of like understanding this. And so the more they can get people engaged, uh, being productive and uh, uh, on that track, uh, it becomes advantageous to them. So we started off that way. But it's always been kind of like puzzling to me because I've been voting for the last 20 years and it's almost like, Man, we haven't got, nobody's gotten a jury summons. And so it was just out of mere curiosity. But then there was a strike of luck. One of our employees gets a jury summons. And when she got the jury summons, she read and said, Hey, I thought we changed this law. And there was only jury summons that prohibited you from service unless you had a pardon from the government. And so that's what prompted the letter. Uh, from our in-house attorney and our counsel director, Anisha, uh, to the court to kind of like just bring it to the attention that, hey, there's an oversight. You don't need to kind of like fix this because the law had changed. And what we found out is that not only was Arlene's parish guilty of not uh, changing, this is kind of like this was this, that real failure to communicate about the law had changed, and this is what the law actually represents today. And so the scramble now is primarily because people didn't do their initial homework that once this law changed to start implementing uh, changing the rules. And it's just amazing because since that letter is went out, everybody has changed their websites. Everybody has kind of like been put on notice. And just like Nick said, come March, they're starting anew with this new system to start pulling people. And what we plan on doing Is just observing to see how many of our people who are actually eligible uh, is actually being called.
4: And I wasn't here for um, you know all the work that went into the passage of Act One Twenty One, but I was here witness to like the beautiful whirlwind that happened when we became aware um, that it wasn't actually being implemented. And I was looking back because it it was actually on our team's like staff chat that Colleen, our um, director of communications, or sorry, director of operations who um, got the jury summons, like took a screenshot of it and was like, hey, what's the timeline on implementation of the jury service bill that, you know, we helped pass two years ago because this looks outdated. So <laughs>
2: um,
4: it was funny, like how casually it kind of happens. And, you know, Emily, our general counsel um, and I came on around the same time, but, you know, she quickly chimed in and was like, oh, bring bring that in. That went into effect August of 2021, you know, we'll." might be grounds to file a motion. And so it, start, it started with one example. And then, um, you know, we put that letter forward. But um, we also put out a call on our, you know, social media to alert folks um, and ask for other stories and experiences. And we actually had um, a follower and a, a vote member come forth and say that they had had a, you know, similar experience. And so then, they um, got in touch with Emily, our general counsel, and and ultimately, you know, were brave enough to um, be a part of the affidavit and actually ultimately, te- uh, you know, testify. So it went from something that was like hypothetical where we, you know, were able to look at the questionnaire and the jury summons to like an actual story of somebody who was um, impacted and, and brave enough to talk about their experience that I think really l- legitimized um, the letter, so. Mm-hmm. Um, Will,
0: can you talk a little bit about what the maybe the broader implications are for the criminal legal system when people are being disenfranchised like this?
1: One of the things that comes to mind and that was lifted up in some of the recent hearings is the legitimacy of any convictions that may or may not have that may or may not have been secured since the law has changed without adequately summoning people with felony convictions to be on those juries. So I think one issue was is legitimacy of convictions since the fair cross-section um, that people are entitled to when they go to trial via the Sixth Amendment, that simply was not being followed because we had a particular distinctive population that was being systematically excluded from that jury box. So one thing is legitimacy in terms of convictions. A second thing that is of concern is the appearance of fairness right um, the American jury system was inherited partially by what the jury system looked like in Britain and in Britain they used barristers they used lawyers to be jurors and when the founders decided to design our jury system, they wanted to have a modern day approach of having individual citizens be part of that jury box. and one of the reasons why they did that is to continue the spirit of checks and balances. And so when we have a system in Orleans Parish that is not necessarily consistent with what the founders envisioned in terms of having everyday citizens being part of that jury deliberation room and be part of that jury box, we then have to question the appearance of fairness in our criminal legal system when we know that there have actually been practices that kept certain people from that jury box.
0: Okay. Tell us about the importance of, of diversity in juries and what the outcomes are that, that you can show
1: yeah, so there's uh, two studies that come to mind. One's from Stanford. Um, one is from the American Bar Association that has looked at the benefits of diversity in, on juries and in group decision making processes. So as it relates to juries and the increase of diversity, one thing that is a benefit of more diverse juries is that there are longer deliberations. So what that means is that the juries are spending more time going over the facts and evidence of the case, or exploring the lack of facts and evidence in the case, and using that additional time to ensure that they are reaching um, the most accurate verdict. So longer deliberations is a benefit. Um, more questions are asked in the deliberation room. So studies suggest that when you have homogenous juries, let's say we have an all-white jury, um, certain questions might not be asked, or certain questions or certain statements. Um, may be made that have racial undertones to them. But the research demonstrates the mere presence of black people or brown people or people of color that is influencing not only the perspectives of the non-people of color jurors, but also the types of questions and beliefs that they are opining in the jury deliberation room. Mm. So the types of questions that are being asked is influencing the deliberation process based on the diversity that is present. And then lastly, a more objective decision is going to be made. I think as a country, we are familiar with the benefits of diversity when it comes to our boardrooms. We are familiar of the benefits of diversity when it comes to our classrooms. I believe for the sake of the fairness of our criminal legal system, we have to be very intentional about our understanding of the benefits of diversity in our jury deliberation room as well.
0: I would imagine a a really tricky proposition is going back. uh, Will, you just just spoke for a minute about convictions based on um, non-diverse pools and how high the bar is going to be to have to prove that, that a a conviction Mm -hmm. is illegally- Secured. Secured, thanks. I know one has already been thrown out, right?
1: Yeah, so um, I think last week, perhaps a week before, no, last week, um, there was a hearing specifically on a motion for a new trial which is a little bit different okay. than the hearing that um, was held the week prior to that, which was a motion to quash. So on the motion to new, for new trial, essentially the defense lawyers are gonna be looking for demonstrable demonstrable evidence that in the interest of justice, the accused person is entitled to a new trial. And so what one of the things that was attempted to be explored during last week's hearing was demonstrating that the person who was convicted of the crime did not have everybody on his jury that he was eligible to have. He did not have that fair cross-section. He did not have that fully kind of within the spirit of the Sixth Amendment impartial jury because not everybody had access to that box, even though the people with felony convictions had the right to be and have access to that box. So what defense attorneys are going to have to show is partially looking at the summonses that actually went out, and I believe um, the court has represented, they send out around 4,000 summonses a month, and being able to kind of um, cross-reference the names of the individuals who were in that 4,000, and if any of those people had felony convictions um, and did not make it to the actual courtroom, then that demonstrates that a cognizable or recognizable. Um, population of people who were eligible to sit on a jury were not present, Mm. then the next thing that you have to demonstrate, and this is the hard part, is were they not present because of the language on the summons or were they not present for some other reason? What we've recognized is step one, the summons in the mail has bad language. It had old language. It said people with felony convictions cannot serve and that's simply not what the law provides. The second item is let's say somebody wanted to go to the website to learn some more information. Well, the link that was on the actual summons is, uh, it was a broken link, it just simply did not work unless Mm. you were able to figure out, you had to delete a certain portion of the beginning of the website, which nobody's gonna go and try to hack the website to try to get access to it. And then the third thing is when you get to the website, it had bad language as well. And so what is difficult to actually demonstrate to the court is the reason why perhaps people with felony convictions did not show up. But I actually do not think that is the threshold. I think the threshold analysis should be looking at what notice was provided, what information was provided. And if the information was bad, we cannot, with, we cannot discard the reality that somebody receives a summons in the mail, a person with felony conviction... And they're told that they don't have the right to serve on a jury. And they perhaps are not familiar with the law. Clearly, the court wasn't familiar with the law. That individual not being familiar with the law change. And they toss that summons. It's going to be hard to track that information down and present that type of evidence to the court. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I don't think we should be going down that course of analysis. I think what we need to be looking at is the number of summonses that went out with the bad information and if you want to do a cross-reference check of the number of individuals of that particular pool who actually did have felony convictions if there were individuals in that pool and those individuals did not make it to the courthouse then in the interest of justice we should be reconsidering that person getting a new trial
3: mm, okay the hearing that will was referencing will actually testified and, and gave some you know compelling testimony about diversity on juries the judge determined in that case that that person was not entitled to new trial and her reasoning was that they couldn't show the kind of direct impact that this may have had on their jury or on their case. Um, and you know, as Will said, the de- the defense attorney in that case said, you know, I shouldn't have to show that I don't have the resources to go, you know, talk to every one of these 4,000 people. But the fact is, there's this, you know, systemic issue with, with how we were, uh, uh you know, summoning jurors and that should be evidence enough that that um, this wasn't a, a fair jury and that this was you know uh, against the law. So you know I think we could find find out more evidence in particular cases, I think there's you know a chance that attorneys could be able to you know find jurors that uh, didn't show up and they can say I didn't show up because I thought I wasn't qualified. Um, and maybe that will be enough to to have a, uh, have a motion for a new trial granted. But there's also the possibility that a judge comes to a different conclusion than the one did um uh, earlier earlier this month and says you know this this was clearly a systemic issue and and that that's enough
1: i think that that's right and another thing that comes to mind is we no longer allow non-unanimous verdicts and so the the weight that even one vote can have in our juries nowadays is very significant before 2018 there would be, you know, you could secure conviction by 10 votes, 10 to 2. But now that we require unanimous you know, verdicts, I think it's important to not necessarily underestimate the impact that one additional person could have on that, on that actual jury.
0: You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Will Snowden, director of the Vera Institute of Justice's New Orleans office and founder of the nonprofit The Juror Project, Norris Henderson, founder and executive director of Voice of the Experienced, or VOTE, Anisha Shetty, director of communications for VOTE, and criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel.
4: Hi, I'm Marta Jusen. If you've been a long-time reader of The Lens, you probably know we are a place to learn about important issues, especially those underrepresented by other media sources. It's hard work, and it takes a dedicated staff who care about this community. Please make a tax-deductible contribution today to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org. Thank you.
0: What can be done to determine if any qualified potential jurors have been purged from the rolls permanently? How is that even possible? And if so, how do you go about remedying that? Who wants to take that one?
1: (laughs) I'm happy to to tee it up and then have Norris back clean up if I miss some things. Um, My understanding is that the court receives information of, of individuals Uh, for our summons list from voter registration and DMV records. And so if a name comes in and uh, the person has been flagged as a person with felony convictions, my understanding of the testimony that was offered is that a particular flag could be assigned to that person so that if that name came back up again, they would recognize that that person had already been flagged for having a felony conviction. So I think what needs to happen is all those previous flags need to be removed completely out of the system. Because what those flags did not take into consideration was the time of the conviction. Because if the conviction and the, the supervision period, so let's say the five years have passed from being under supervision of the Department of Corrections, if those five years have passed, that person is now eligible to serve on jury. So what the process needs to be. Is start from scratch in terms of all the names that come from voter registration and DMV records. You can still screen them for felony convictions, um, because people with felony convictions that are within the last five years, in terms of when they finished their their sentence, um, those people would not be eligible. Um, but if you are flagging those people, that could be step one. Step two has to be looking at the time frame in which they have completed their actual service their their um, supervision.
2: That has been the challenge even around the voter registration piece uh, because corrections has been trying to do this automated drop to the Secretary of the State's office. And for some reason, there's been resistance on that end because DOC actually has the database that identifies everybody, what's t- the, the end of service marks, and everything. And we have been trying to eliminate this. Paper trail that folks had to bring to the World Register's Office to notify them that I'm no longer on supervision, and I or I'm outside of this this window of five years, and I'm an eligible to register to vote. And so we've been haggling with uh, DOC about how to fix that process. And through COVID, it kind of like took care of itself because nobody was coming out, nobody was able to go to PMP to get the document uh, to present. And so they did in-house between DOC, Secretary of State and the Registries Office, they figured it out. And so we're hoping that this same system that's in place by the two main characters, DOC and the Secretary of State's office can figure this piece out because this is where all the names are coming from. Either way it goes. And, uh, you know, the thing that clears it up, because once you go get the driver's license, uh, DMV, you becomes in those pools automatically because you can register vote at the DMV. And uh, so I think the notification, I think this is that the lesson learned uh, for folks to kind of like automate their system, to get their systems to start tickling them in a way that keeps them abreast of what's actually going on. So that's what we're hopeful of that this is that little nudge uh, to get them to kind of like just, you know, hey, the law changed in August of uh, 20 while we're still going through uh, these processes.
0: Call me naive. Um, I, I keep coming back to this thinking that this really, the way you describe it, both of you, It's it sounds like it's really just an administrative issue. Just unmark that in the algorithm of the computer that spits the thing out, just take that little thing out and you've got this clean, as you said, Will, the, just remove that box.
2: It is administrative, but I think what it's more of is that I don't think their systems communicate with each other. I think that's where the real challenge is at. Right. It's just, not on the same, everybody has a different firewall, giving certain people access or non-access. And I think that's where the breakdown comes in as that Secretary of State is not trusting DOC to give them the clean, you know, uh, snapshot of what's going on. The register's offices are uh, the same thing. Like the, the clerk, from our understanding, what we learned through a hearing was that the clerk in Jefferson, Paris, or was it, no, it was the civil district court clerk, had told the criminal district court people that, oh, we've already fixed our problem. And they still didn't do anything on a criminal court level. So that's kind of like that's uh, administrative, but at the same time it's almost like and nobody told us folks are used to people telling them what to do. Right. And in this case, it's almost like, no, the law changed, y'all are supposed to implement these things. And there was no follow-through. We even tried to I'm saying we, but I wasn't the first to question nobody. But one of the things that came out one of the hearing was whether or not they had any CLEs on this. The law change. changed. Anybody notify y'all about the law being changed? And they were kind of like, duh, we haven't had any CLEs. And so it's like, Hmm. it's more than just this administrative you know, snafu. This is kind of like bigger than this. This is kind of like, it's almost like the Peter principle, you know? People have been promoted up to these positions and that nobody has a clue about what's actually going on. And it's amazing because every year uh, the local paper notify everybody of the change in the law, mm. that these laws will be going into effect August 15 most times on December 31st. And for them to have missed something of this magnitude uh, says a lot about how attentive it is to their job.
0: And so therefore applause and kudos to your organizations for watching out for these kinds of things and checking up. What else keeps you awake at night? What what potential outcomes or potential
2: pitfalls are there? In this town, like right now, <laughs> yeah. the thing that's keeping me up now is, what are they going to do to try to undermine this process? Hmm. To be honest, that's what's on my mind right now. What are they going to do to undermine this process? Because the sad thing about this is that it wasn't but nine out of 64 parishes within this state that's doing it right. That has changed their website. And the thing about it was, here's the real confusion, the clerk's office posted one thing and the register's office is posting something else in the very same parish. So this has been a challenge uh, across the board. Uh, with this whole process, so my greatest fear right now, the thing that keeps me up at night, is whether or not we walk into this upcoming legislative session, and somebody's want to tweak this piece of legislation. Do you do you
3: believe that everyone who was convicted in the last year and a half in parishes and jurisdictions that you know weren't following this law are entitled to new trials?
2: Well, the the the, the, the law that applies to jurors, but these jurors and grand jurors, that if people were excluded from those things, that uh, they would actually be entitled because of constitutional violation. Ain't nothing start unless you start the process. The process starts with the jury. So if you don't have the jury, that's what was so important about the non-unanimous piece about the retroactivity of it. How can you say one group of people the constitutional standards being upheld because we gonna reverse all those convictions but because the guys were not on direct appeal we're going to let y'all link with all that and so there was no actually equal protection on the law uh, in that way but the, everything starts with the jury so if the jury is not in panel correctly and when they say a jury of your peers now this is really truly the jury of somebody's peers if somebody's on the jury That actually, you know, similarly situated as they once were, you know, Mm -hmm. or as they actually are. So I think it's important. Is this is going to be taken up on appeal, and we just have to hope that uh, we hopefully won't have to go outside the state with this, meaning to federal court. But eventually, this might wind up in federal court.
1: This notion of having a fair cross section of your community when going to trial, and it's specifically articulated in a case called uh, Durin versus Missouri. And there's this thing called a Duran test. And if I remember correctly, there's three steps to the Durin test. One, and you raise the Duran test or you apply the Duran test when you're trying to argue that the jury does not represent a fair cross-section um, consistent with what is required via the Sixth Amendment. So step one is you want to demonstrate that there is a distinctive group that has been removed from the jury pool. So mm-hmm. in this instance, we're talking about people with felony convictions. Um, the second part of the durd test is that you have to demonstrate that this distinctive group was removed as a result of some system process. So in, in this instance, we can demonstrate that people with felony convictions were removed from the jury box because the summonses that were uh, mailed out had the improper language and was informing people that they did not have the right to serve on a jury. Or if people went to the website, that language wasn't accurate. Or if people called in, they may have gotten um, turned away from the actual staff. And then the third part of the Durham test is that that there is a unique interest amongst the community that has been excluded that cannot otherwise be represented, represented by other individuals. And so we know that people with felony convictions have a unique experience that they would add to that overall jury deliberation process and that their experience and perspective could not be represented by some other group. So, I think on the Durham test and a fair cross section perspective, there's certainly legal grounds there. But what you're asking about, Nick, is motions for new trial, which is a different threshold. And that threshold is, I believe, the key part of um, that article is I think it says in the interest of justice. And so, what people will have to demonstrate is that is it in the interest of justice to give these people new trials? knowing that they did not have access to a fair cross-section of their community as is articulated from case law via the Sixth Amendment. I think there is a good case to be made that people are entitled to new trials. We've seen something a little bit similar in Baton Rouge when it was revealed that younger people were being excluded from the juries. And so just as those – and that I believe was a a computer error. But as we can – agree that those people in Baton Rouge were, I think it was maybe one case was entitled to a new trial. I think folks will be looking at that case to see the corollaries in terms of the people that have been convicted without access to the jurors of individuals with felony convictions that have had their rights restored.
4: I will just say like, in, for like our organization in particular, I think the emphasis really is on just making sure that the institution does get it right moving forward. Um, and I know we commended the Um, The criminal court, the criminal court actually graciously offered us their space to do a CLE in December around this very act. So, you know, I I know one of the things that we wanted to emphasize is that I think the judges did the right thing to to halt the trials and to, you know, commend them and acknowledge that because it really is important to get this right moving forward. And I know we're talking about it potentially being an administrative thing, but if you think about just you know the misinformation the confusion across all the levels that's not good i mean it's it's the law and i think we really want to emphasize that uh felony people with felony convictions can vote um you know after the 5 year uh 5 year completion and that really should be something that we're all rallying around and we just want the institutions to function as they're supposed to and be inclusive rather than exclusive and that's really our role in it you know um so we just kind of want the law that was passed to be implemented as it should have been and as intended so that's our two cents well said. thank you i
1: agree 100 i have to correct the record i listed the wrong parts of the Durin test step oh. one of the duran test is <laughs> the group is a distinctive group of the community step two that the representation of that group on the juries is not fair and reasonable in relation to the number of those people in the actual community. And that third, the underrepresentation, is due to systematic exclusion.
0: It's a little little nerve-wracking that a law is passed, but you need to make sure that it's actually being followed.
2: That's that's what real work starts at. It's it's probably easy to get something passed, but kind of like watching it, kind of like implementation is where the challenge is almost all the time.
4: And further, Louisiana struggles with filling its jury seats. This is an advantage of expanding the jury pool, and you know, not only diversifying but expanding it. Um, so we shouldn't lose sight of that as well. You know, we're talking about close to a million Louisiana citizens who have, you know, been impacted by felony convictions and excluded. So this is a, you know, this is a good thing if we can get it right.
0: Anisha Shetty, Norris Henderson, Will Snowden, Nick Krestel, Thank you so much for your time, everybody. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Carolyn. Bye.
0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, Will Snowden, director of the Vera Institute of Justice's New Orleans office and founder of the nonprofit The Juror Project. Norris Henderson, founder and executive director of Voice of the Experienced, or VOTE, Anisha Shetty, director of communications for VOTE, and criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.